So you get one warning tonight, and this is it. This is not my normal Christmas Eve message. If you have been here any other years, you will notice that right away. Tonight is the culmination of four weeks of Advent. Advent in the church calendar was a time of sober reflection that led to a time of loud and raucous joy. So tonight, we may have started slow, but we are going to end loud. So I guess that's two warnings, so there you go. I guess I lied, whatever. The word Advent has Latin roots, and it means the coming, or more accurately, the coming towards, that God has come towards a lost and a broken people in desperate need. So Advent is celebrated like the moment before the moment of God's coming. Now, today, we live on the other side of the moment, but we celebrate the leading up to the moment at Advent. Now, in just a few hours, it'll be Christmas, where hopefully, you know, we will celebrate the moment. But right now, we're kind of on the cusp. Our joy, hopefully, is ready to crescendo. You may have had a hard time finding your seat, but maybe you had, like, a lot of joy in that. Tonight, I'm going to give you the big idea we're going to cover. We're going to cover God with us. We're actually going to start in the book of Genesis because that's where God first reveals himself. But to get there, I want to read you something out of the book of Job. It's in Job chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, and it says, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. So yeah, Job is having a bad day, all right? These are not happy words, kind of a bummer way to start a Christmas Eve message, I know, sorry, but you got to go with me. So Job says, let the day on which I was born perish, take it off the calendar. And then he says, you go back nine months before that, the night I was conceived, let that perish. Mom and dad, sorry about the honeymoon, it wasn't good enough for me, so we need to take that away. And then he says, you go all the way back to creation, and let there be darkness. And this is a reference to Genesis, where God says, let there be light. What Job is saying is, my pain is so great, I'd rather the entire universe did not exist. I'd rather undo all of creation. And we say, nice, Job, self-centered much? But, but how would you even do that? Job says, let those curse it who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Now, that's a reference to the sea. And I know it looks kind of weird, but what does it mean to rouse up Leviathan? Well, in the ancient world, there were all these contentious conversations going on about how the earth got here, how stuff came to be, and why human beings exist. I'm so glad that's over. (laughs) The conversations about this were going on in the ancient Mesopotamian world where Israel was. So you had Egyptians and Sumerians and Babylonians, and they had all of these stories, and all of these stories involved these limited, fallible gods. They believed in the supernatural, but not one God. So there were a bunch of gods who were limited, and they would fight each other, and then they would fight with these strange, mythical creatures who we today have come to call chaos monsters. And they viewed creation as a struggle between order and chaos. This right here uh, just comes along. You see this is a chaos monster right in the middle of the hieroglyphic. Now, why did they do this? Because they faced chaos every day. Drought, starvation, shipwrecks, epidemics, government mandates, executive orders. And people wanted to know how stuff came to be ordered. How does chaos get pushed aside so human beings could live? 
This is kind of the idea behind the Hebrew word shalom, the peace of God. How do we get peace with God and peace with one another and peace with creation? Now, Job was written a very long time ago. It's probably one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. And it's very clear that he is referencing these old stories that involve these multiple gods. These gods are very much like human beings, meaning they were very imperfect ethically. And at this time, there is no connection between religion, the gods, and ethics, how we would live our lives. So ancient people started to make everything into gods. The sun would have a name and get worshipped. The moon got a name and got worshipped. The stars got worshipped. Even in our day, people think the stars influence how human affairs turn out. It's called astrology or horoscopes. I like to call it horror scopes, by the way. In one creation story, creation happens after a saltwater goddess named Tiamat gives rise to 11 horrible mutants, kind of like flying reindeer. Just kidding. Just kidding. Like, they're like monster snakes and lion men and scorpion men and fish men. Now, eventually, they're all subdued. But creation always happened in these stories out of the struggle between gods and the chaos monsters. And human beings in these stories were an afterthought, very much like the secular worldview today that says there's no divine purpose behind human beings. You're an accident of evolution. You have no purpose. Now, there's an excellent book called The Lost World of Genesis 1 that speaks about all of this. And Genesis 1 is written in part to address this worldview. Genesis 1 comes along and it threatens the core assumptions and the nature of how people thought about themselves and all of the speculations because God's going to step in. And God's going to say, you have all of these, minus, uh, all these mindless speculations, but I'm going to step in and I'm going to tell you the truth. In the ancient stories, all, in these ancient stories, they're all out there. Then you've got a God who reveals himself in the midst of it and says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that means everything that is. That sentence will literally change the world. And if you live at this time, the very first thing you would notice is, you, is you've never really seen a chaos monster. I mean, you've heard about them. Like, you've heard these rumors of yetis or Loch Ness monsters and things, but you've never really seen one. So Genesis comes along and it says there are no other gods. There is no struggle. There is just one God and he is the king. And when he speaks, those things happen. It's the beginning of the understanding of God with us. That God is strong and God is in control and he is strong enough to take care of all of us. Now, this idea comes out of the first sentence in Genesis 1. It's with the word bara. It means to create. God created the heavens and the earth. This is used 50 times in the Old Testament, this word bara, but it's only ever used to talk about God and his work. No human being ever gets to bara. This aspect points to the exclusivity of God that it's used for that shows that God is in ultimate control. Now, the reason people in the ancient world was so concerned about chaos is this universal human fear. I feel like things are out of control. And there's a good reason for that. You know what it is? Things are out of control. It's simple, at least your control. So there's always been this challenge to human pride. We are self-deceived, especially in our day. We think we can control things, but you cannot control your life. Not through your intelligence or your education or your money or your contacts, not through worrying. And if you wait until you have everything under control to be at peace, you know how long you're going to wait? Until you're dead. Then you won't be happy about that either. God in the beginning was strong enough to create everything because God is sovereign. He is powerful. This is why to live with God, a life with him begins in surrender where we say, God, I'm not in control of anything, but I'll live in confidence with your strength. Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning, God created, God borrowed. And then it talks about God making stuff. He says, let there be light. It doesn't even use that word bara again until the 21st verse. And this is what it says. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. 
Now, why does it use the word borrow there? Because the writer of Genesis is making clear to us that in the ancient world, the greatest forces you know, those mysterious creatures of the sea, God made them. God made them, and he can unmake them. There is no force in this world that threatens God. The great sea creatures, they are not his rivals. They are his pets. There is no force in the world that ultimately threatens God's good purpose. God made the chaos monsters. God made Orca the killer whale. God made your boss. God made your spouse. But don't call them Orca because then they will turn into a chaos monster. So... But it tells you, you do not have to be afraid. This gives understanding to what a lot of the prophets start to say in the Old Testament because they're trying to speak into this world. Isaiah 51 verse 9, the prophet says, Was it not you, God, who cut Rahab into pieces, who pierced the dragon? You're like, oh, I watch Game of Thrones. When, I want, I like, when did that happen? I want to know that story. And you're like, that's amazing. Or Psalm 74, verse 13. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. When did God do that? I want to read about that story. It is this backdrop of this conversation that the writers of the Old Testament keep telling people that God is the most wise, the most omniscient, powerful being there is. Therefore, you do not have to be afraid. And that becomes the most common command in the scriptures. 366 times it tells you this. That's one for every day of the year and one for a leap year. Don't be afraid. And there's a reason that is given for that. Don't be afraid because God says, I am with you. That is God with us. We are supposed to be people who live in that understanding. How was your attitude this morning when you got out of bed? Did you have to stay away from caffeine because you have so much energy? You're so excited because God is with us? You know, caffeine just makes you a little bit dangerous so you don't touch it? I mean, when you woke up, what was your first thought? Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote this, For Christians, the beginning of the day should not be burdened and oppressed with besetting concerns for the day's work. I know he sounds like a morning person. I get it. Okay. At the threshold of each new day stands the Lord who made it. All the darkness and distraction of the dreams of night retreat before the clear light of Jesus Christ and his wakening word. All unrest, all impurity, all care and anxiety flee before him. Therefore, at the beginning of the day, let all distraction and empty talk be silenced and let the first thought and the first word belong to him to who are holy whole life belongs. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Ephesians 5.14, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I mean, what, what a great thought. Tomorrow morning, I don't know what time you're going to wake up. If you've got kids, it's probably really early, right? But, you know, maybe they sleep in or whatever. Wouldn't it be great if you are the first one up, and instead of your alarm clock going, rank, 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 you walked around the house and woke everybody up and said, Awake, O sleepers, and arise from the dead. They will totally appreciate you for it. <laughs> and they'll remember this service, which will actually be okay. Genesis 1 starts with God's sovereign power, God's bara. His ultimate purpose is going to be realized. But that's not the only thing it tells you. It tells you that he is sovereign, but God is also good. Many of those ancient stories about how stuff came to be functional. So how does it tell you that God is good? Well, in those ancient stories, human beings end up being created as an afterthought to serve the gods because the gods have needs, except for the story in Genesis. This God, the real God, the one true God, has no needs at all. He creates the earth not for himself, but to make space for human beings. It says this, the earth was without, without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. 
Without form and void is not really talking about the shape of things. It is language from those ancient stories about chaos. The ancient readers would have recognized that. But what happens? God comes and God speaks. Let there be light. He brings order so human beings have a home because God is good. And you go day after day. You know, first, God says, let there be light. Day two is what you talk about as weather. Day three is dry land and vegetation. Day four, God makes lights. He talks about the sun and the moon and the stars. It says, God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. What's the greater light to govern the day called? The sun. What's the lesser light to govern the night called? See, you went through the first grade. You know, you're good. You're good. See, in that ancient world, the sun was worshipped and the the moon was worshipped. And so the writer doesn't even give them a name. He just said lights and God made those because, because he doesn't want you to worship those things. They were made by God. He says, don't worship the creation. Worship the Creator. On day five, God fills up the sky with birds of the air, fish of the sea. On day six, he fills up the earth with land and human beings. And the picture is that God is this joyful, generous creator. He's an inventor, a designer, an engineer. He brings order and function to the universe because God is good. And what God makes, God then blesses. And then you get to the high point. The high point is day seven. What does God do on day seven? He rested. You're like... The weekend. That you know, kind of seems anticlimactic, right? He just rested. You know, you're like, what is up with this? How does God get tired if he's, if he's all-powerful? Well, ancient readers who would hear this story, they'd be astounded when they heard that on the seventh day, God rested. In Genesis, there's all these connections that we tend not to notice, but people in Israel would have understood these connections between the earth, the creation, and the temple. The temple in Israel was a place where God dwells. When Israel was traveling through the wilderness, God had them set up a tent, a tabernacle for him to be with his people. So in Genesis 1, God creates the sea. He separates the water from the water. And then in the temple, there is this bowl. And this bowl is called the molten seas. And it's a reminder that God is the one who made the sea. In Genesis 2, it talks about the Garden of Eden. It says the gold there is good. And there is onyx and aromatic resin there as well. So in the temple, there is gold. And there's onyx on the priest's breastplate. And aromatic resin, it is burned as incense. In Genesis 3, we're told God places a cherubim on the east side of the Garden of Eden. In the temple, in the tabernacle, there is a cherubim. And the entrances to both of those are from the east. In Genesis, we're told that God put the Lord, that God put man in the garden to serve it and to keep it. And those become kind of technical phrases in the Old Testament. Kind of like in our day. If you drive down the road and you see uh, you know, a sign on the side of a car and it says to serve and protect, who's that? Police, right. So what do you do? Slow down. Yeah. In case you didn't know, I'm just helping you out. Speed up is not the answer. Okay. Now, you slow down. Well, to serve and to keep in the Old Testament was used to describe priests who serve in the temple. In other words, what Genesis is saying is that it's not just that God created the heavens and the earth. What day seven and rest is the earth was made by God to be his temple, his dwelling place. And you and I were made in his image to be his priest, to exercise dominion over his world. And we do that with him. Genesis says, God sat down on his throne and said, this is my world. And I created you. And you're made in my image. So you're going to work with me and love with me and play with me and rest with me. Now you get to enter into my rest. And that is our great calling. To make the world like this. Our hearts like this. A place where we live with God. But there's a problem. There's a problem. Chaos makes a comeback in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world, and there is pain and death and suffering and violence today. And it is not because of some superstitious force out there that chaos is in here. 
It's in the human heart. After all that God created, after all that God reveals himself to be, mankind still rebelled. We decided that we knew better than God what was true and right for our lives. And so we broke relationship with God and each other. And we still do this every single day. And now we all face the chaos monsters of regret and abuse and betrayal and loneliness and divorce and guilt. You may be here tonight in the, in the midst of this room with all these people and feel completely alone. But here is the amazing thing. The king comes once again. And this time the king comes in a manger. In John 1.14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt, that's actually the word tabernacle, like in the wilderness, dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. What you have to understand is that the sin and the rebellion that started on one tree in a garden, eventually Jesus grows up and lives and dies and rises from the grave, and it has defeated all of that sin at the foot of another tree. The beauty is that death would not and could not defeat this king, and Jesus is reigning right now forever, seated at the right hand of God the Father. The meaning of Christmas is that God has come in Jesus to defeat the chaos monsters in our lives. He comes to bring glory to God and restore hope and love and joy and peace again. This is why we are told in the first chapter of Matthew, She, Mary, will bear a son and shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, God comes to save us again. Jesus is the creator. Jesus owns us. This is the only possible premise or basis on which he could forgive our sins and destroy the chaos in our lives. What's really interesting throughout the scriptures, whenever an angel shows up in the Bible, people hit the deck. They get afraid and they go down, and because of their power and their majesty, it's kind of overwhelming. But whenever somebody starts to worship an angel, an angel says, whoa, 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 I'm a creature just like you. I mean, I'm a prettier creature, obviously, and a better one than you, but I'm just a creature just like you. You don't worship me. But when everybody, anybody goes down on their knees to worship Jesus, you know what he does? He accepts it. He accepts it. He receives it. He's saying, I'm not a creature. I have no beginning. There never was a time with which I was not. And so his followers worship him as God. This is something Jesus claimed and showed, and his followers believed this. The great God, with all of his majesty, infinitely greater than the universe, has put himself in the form of witness. He has come alongside. He has entered into an intimate personal relationship with us. He is God with us. Up until the time Jesus showed up, to enter into the presence of God is totally terrifying. This God who can crush the heads of the chaos monster. He is seen as a smoking furnace, a pillar of fire, a tornado. When Moses asked to see the presence of God, the best he got was the place where God just was. God's backside. And yet his face was so full of radiance from seeing that he put a veil to cover it for hours or days until it went away. Can you imagine if Moses were here and he got to hear the message of Christmas and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. John goes on and says, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Imagine if you heard the message of Christmas in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, Moses had to put a veil over his face, but Christ has removed the veil because God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Moses would be yelling at us. He'd say, don't you realize what Christmas means? 
It means that through Jesus, you get to meet with God. You can know Him personally without terror. He can come into your life. All the majesty and power can come and embrace you. Where is your joy? Where is your joy? Where is your amazement? Why isn't this the driving force of your life? Because this is Christmas. Jesus is not just God. He is God with us. And throughout the scriptures, the us are these people that God keeps inviting. The the shepherds, the stinky lowliest of jobs, the astrologers, the outcasts, the people who are far away from society, the ones who the chaos has overwhelmed their lives and they don't know what to do and Jesus comes and rescues and they surrender. It is not the religious who say, oh God, you owe me because I've tried really hard. It's those who know that our only hope rests in who he is. I will give you the best Christmas gift I can by stealing from Timothy Keller. <laughs> I'll give you three things that he says. Number one, if he is God with us, we have to take off the limitations we have made for him in our life. So some of you has, have chaos, chaos problems in your life. You have habits and needs and difficulties, and you've just decided that's just the way things are. It's the way things are always going to be. And yet Paul says, faith in the one true God hopes all things. It endures all things. Paul talks that way because he takes seriously the message of Christmas. That Jesus is God. And if he is God, and if he invented the universe with a snap of his fingers, do you think your chaos is any match for him? Secondly, Christmas is about the nearness of Jesus. We look at what God did to come and be with his people who ran away from him. We look at how Jesus claws his way from heaven to earth to come and be with his people, not because we are so good, but because he is that good. And sometimes we say things like, oh, I wish I just had more time for prayer. What that means is, oh, it's going to cost me something. It is nothing compared to what it cost him to be with us. The third thing is if we believe Jesus is God with us, any lukewarm response to him is not rational. John Stott once said, anybody who ever met Jesus Christ only ever had three responses to him. They either were terrified and wanted to run away, or they hated him and wanted to kill him and stone him to death, or they worshipped him and got down on their knees and gave him everything. No other response is really rational when you see who he says that he is. He is God with us. And we should be a people who live with that on our hearts, live it out in our lives, because our God has come. Our God is sovereign. We surrender our lives to Him. And there is hope here now, and there is love here now, and there is joy here now, and there is peace here now, because we center our lives on Jesus. This is why the candle in the center of the room is lit. It is the Christ candle, representative of who He is. It's why when you came in, we gave you these really crappy candles okay we know they're cheap still costs a lot of money i don't know if they're gonna last for you like you know an hour or like 10 days i don't know but i would say light it when you go home and leave it on and when you see it start to remember the centrality of who jesus is that he is god with us that he has come to rescue and save us because advent means that jesus has come towards us you can even turn them on now if you want to i don't care they may not last the entire service i don't know okay but you can because we must be a people who understand what our great god did to rescue and redeem us i mean we are going to hit Music louder, faster right now, but if you would like, there is communion at all the tables around the room. It's where you break that cracker that reminds us of Christ's body that was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. 
so that we can be restored and we can be redeemed and he becomes central to our lives and all the chaos can begin to go away because we realize that he is strong and he is mighty and he is good. Let's pray. Father, tonight, we thank you for being the God who comes to be with us, a people who so often run away from you. And yet you chase us down and you give us hope again and love again and joy again and peace again. I ask that we'd be a people who live in that peace and we'd understand the coming towards, that you have come towards us and you have called us home and you have defeated the chaos and that we as a people would live in remembrance of your goodness, your sovereignty and all that you are. Thank you for saving us. Amen. Merry Christmas.